Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Live Life Liberated with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. Today, Kyle Momstrom has a special guest that is Mark Morris. Kyle, why'd you bring Mark on the show today? Today, we're talking about income tax planning, Eric. Again and again, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is the catalyst for the discussion. Mm-hmm. Because today, the strategy we were going to be talking about got a lot bigger teeth after that was passed. Part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was it limited the state and local tax deduction, better known as the, the SALT tax, to $10,000. And as soon as that passed, everything changed from estate tax minimization to more of an income tax focus starting in 2018. And it wasn't long before advisors started parading around with different strategies, and you started hearing catchy terms like ings, wings, nings, and dings. (laughs) Folks, we're not talking about chickens here. We're talking about estate and income tax planning techniques, and there's no one better here to talk about that than my friend Mark. So Mark, why don't you start by sharing your background education and who you serve? Thank you, Kyle. So I serve as a senior tax counsel to Levitt's Axe. a full-service accounting firm, which has been servicing clients in San Diego County and other places for about 55 years, a little bit more than that, actually. My role is to render opinions about tax positions that a client might be able to take on their returns. I began my career after becoming a licensed attorney and CPA with a former Big 8 accounting firm. Now, I realize that dates me using that reference. Additionally, I had some postgraduate law degrees with um, graduated very well and to round out my academic background. But it's been the decades of sophisticated tax experience working at Levitt-Zach since 89 for high net worth clientele that's really helped me distinguish the good from the bad and avoid the really ugly uh, of available tax strategies out there. I've also been privileged to assist in either helping develop or discover a handful of legitimate loopholes, which are now extensively used as state planning tools and techniques, and others that will hopefully become so soon. Thanks, Mark. So today, we are going to be talking about the ING strategy, who it's for, how it works, considerations, pitfalls, and maybe get into some colorful cases. So ING's wings and dings, Mark, what are we talking about here? What do the acronyms stand for, and what is the strategy designed to do? Yes, wings, dings, nings, and other things, uh, Kyle. That's a whole mouthful. These are unique types of trusts for a special purpose. And the first initial in the acronym describes the trust place of origin, W for Wyoming, D for Delaware, N for Nevada. And please don't ask me to pronounce uh, other popular jurisdiction in South Dakota. So the other initials, or the ing part of the ING, stand for the initial federal private letter ruling conclusions for these types of trusts. I is for incomplete, meaning these trusts result in the grantor making an incomplete gift when the assets are transferred. The NG represents a concept that, of the status that these are non-grantor trusts. One division of the whole trust tax world is between so-called grantor trusts and non-grantor trusts. A grantor trust assets are considered owned by the grantor for income tax purposes. However, a non-grantor trust refers to a trust that's a separate taxpayer 
from its creator, just like a corporation is a separate taxpayer from the shareholder forming it. So a non-grantor trust pays its own tax liability on income earned by the trust that's not distributed. So we have an incomplete gift with a non-grantor trust. Mark, what is the reason someone would want the taxes to be paid by an entity in a non-grantor status? So if a person is resident of a a high-tax jurisdiction such as California where the rate is 13.3%, they might consider putting some assets in a non-grantor trust that's taxed in a low jurisdiction. Some of these states have zero uh, income tax. So that would be a primary consideration for, for that type of a structure. So you're, you're taking the what would ordinarily be income tax in California, and you're moving it to another jurisdiction where there isn't any state income tax. That's correct. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about who are the people that would most likely set this type of trust set up. So some of the low-hanging fruit, if you will, uh, of a person that would really be a good candidate for the Ing Trust uh, typically would be someone looking for a liquidity event. Uh, they're going to sell their business in either, you know, next six months, next year or so. And certainly before one would get an LOI or letter of intent. So some advanced planning is and timing is, is important for that consideration. But they're looking for this future uh, nest egg where they're going to be selling uh, the business. That would be a, a prime candidate for the structure. But if they're not going to have a future liquidity event coming up, they might also consider this particular technique if they have, say, a multi-state business that's earning some income from outside of the high-tax jurisdiction. I'm using California. Uh, so they have some non-California source income. And as long as they remain a resident of California, they're going to be taxed on their worldwide income. So they're taxed on 100% of what the business is, is earning. Uh, by using the Ing Trust strategy, they might be able to carve off some of that non-source income and not have it taxed back to California. So that would be an, an opportunity as well. That could be huge. So you've been doing numbers of these types of cases over the last couple of years. What is the magnitude of the amount of tax savings that you've seen, kind of low range to high range, uh, so that our audience can get a feel for who this might be applicable to? So we have had uh, transactions somewhere between the uh, $20 million uh, range up to $100 million. Several of those were the businesses being sold. Um, so anytime you take, uh, say, 13.3 times a very significant number, there are significant savings that can result. Um, but again, going back to the situation where you might have uh, some income tax uh, at the state level that's a little bit lower, say, you know, if you had 20000 uh, to $50,000 on an annual basis, of savings, that would be uh, certainly a significant uh, factor as well. So this applies primarily to people that live in high income tax states? Absolutely. Um, Ings have, have been around for a while. Um, they're particularly attractive to folks, say, in California, residents there, New York as well. Although New York has had its own statutes and uh, pushback on Ings to try to 
to address those. California hasn't come up with that type of legislation yet to push back on the ink strategy. Mark, with regards to the sale of a business and the amount of tax that would be generated, what happens in California if you own the business in the state of California and you set the interest up to sell the sell the business? Does that have any implications on this strategy? Yes. Uh, so it's important to distinguish between the interest of the business, the shares of the corporation, the partnership interest, those types of things that that an individual owns, and where the business actually operates. So the business itself could operate within California, and still one would be able to sell the stock of the, the corporation or the interest thereof and be able to achieve some significant tax savings, regardless of the fact that it's operating within the state. So you take a business, you set up the ing, you put the business inside the ing in Nevada or South Dakota or wherever jurisdiction, you sell it, and now the transaction of the sale occurs inside of the ing? Is that? Yes. So the, yes. So the ing would sell the uh, corporate stock or other assets and the income would be realized at the trust level. And by setting up the ING strategy or the ING trust, the tax is uh, associated at the trust level, not, not, not on distributions to the beneficiaries in certain cases. So you mentioned California source income. How does that come into play with regards to this business that I put inside the ING and on the sale? So the sourcing rules are a very important consideration in properly getting the benefits from the ink strategy. There's one type of sourcing rule that applies to stocks, bonds, other things that we call intangible assets. So generally that's taxed wherever the owner of the intangible is residing. If it's a Nevada or South Dakota trust, then it's sourced to that jurisdiction, which has zero tax rate. So that sourcing, again, can become very important. On the other hand, if you have California real estate and you're selling that, it's not going to work very well because that's 100% sourced to California where the real estate is located. In fact, there have been some very interesting case law that has come down. Just recently, um, late last year, in fact, there was um, the, the Paps Blue Ribbon heirs decided to set up some ink trusts themselves. And what they did is they not only sell, sold the uh, stock, they, they actually sold the assets of the company. And when you have an asset sale, the primary value of that business is associated with goodwill. And what the taxpayers attempted to do is say, well, goodwill is an intangible asset, which it is. But th there are some particular sourcing rules involved when the business sells the a business asset and the office of tax appeals there decided that the goodwill of that business should be taxed 6.6 percent because it was a multi-state business back to the back to its california source so when you get into an asset sale versus a stock sale the, the sourcing rules can become very very important sounds like it sounds like it negates the uh, transaction intent so, Mark, when we talk about the strategy, uh, you and I worked on this before, and, and you frequently bring up the cast of characters 
and how it is integral to the to the strategy. And if the listeners haven't figured it out, the strategy has some some very specific processes and 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 things that you need to follow. So let's talk about the cast of characters and how those roles play into the technique to avoid the state income tax. So after you've dealt with the California sourcing rules, you have to deal with another body of rules that apportion some of the tax back to California under its taxing regime by where the fiduciaries or trustees are located. So when we talk about this cast of characters, like, okay, you have to set up a name trust. Um, all trusts have a trustee. You definitely want to have a trustee that's located outside the state of California. And so that's one selection. So there's an administrative trustee that will basically handle the day-to-day administrative affairs. Another selection is someone who calls or directs the administrative trustee as to the type of investments that are allowed or not allowed. And that's an investment advisor or investment trustee. Then there's another group, usually a committee, that decides on when and who is going to receive distributions from the trust. That committee we like to call a power of appointment committee for important reasons. And that power of appointment committee meets together. They decide on on the distributions which are made to the, the group of beneficiaries. But we always like to have that power of appointment committee to be composed of individuals who are also potential beneficiaries. It's important that there be some what's called adverse interest. In other words, if I'm sitting on the committee, I could vote to make a distribution to myself. That's an important characteristic of everybody sitting on that committee. But uh, that committee need not uh, be composed of people that reside outside of California if we have those adverse interests, if it's a true power of appointment committee. And that's an important legal distinction to properly structure these. So those are some of the cast of characters that we talk about. Okay, so as a quick review, you got the grantor, he sets up, he or she sets up the trust, they're the creator of the trust, and in order to get the tax benefit, they have to give up some control among this cast of characters. Correct. Of that cast of characters, the administrative trustee who's outside of the state that you live in. Typically a trust uh, company in a, in a, one of the states that you've selected. And most of the ones you've set up had a trust company do it? Yes. Yes, they have. Um, occasionally you'll run into a situation where somebody has a real trusted uh, acquaintance or person that happens to be a resident of one of the top tier jurisdictions. So you basically just but that's that's the rarity. Saved a you, few pen, yeah, saved a few yeah. pennies and dished off responsibilities yeah, it's, to a buddy. It's generally <laughs> safer to just have a, a trust company that administers the trust as the administrative trustee, and there's an annual fee for that. But it's uh, it's it, in the scheme of things, it's it's very manageable. The administrative trustee do they hire the investment advisor? They can hire the investment advisor or, or take on that role themselves. Or the grantor can actually uh, appoint an individual to have that role. And, th- and their, their role is simply to say, this is an acceptable investment or not. And then that investment advisor can actually go out and hire 
very good companies like Centura Wealth Management to manage there, and they, they could be located in California, for, sure, for for example. But the investment advisor themselves, the one that is uh, de- makes the ultimate decision, they should not be a California uh, a California resident. And we also need to. That doesn't mean they can be in any other state necessarily for that particular fiduciary role. But so we need to be selective of what state they actually are a resident of. They need not be a, a resident of the particular state of, say, Nevada or South Dakota where the administrative trust is. But, but we need to be careful of the state laws located in, you know, say, say it was in Arizona, you'd be trading a 13.3% for a 4.5% tax, if, for example, if they were an Arizona resident, just by way of example. Fair enough. And then the power of appointment committee, do those people need to be outside of California? No, they do not. Um, if, in fact, they have that adverse, uh, you know, that's the term of art, the adverse um, party relationship. In other words, they, as long as they can have the ability to appoint the assets or at least vote on the, the appointment of the assets, back to themselves, then that that should be sufficient to prevent it be, them being treated as a trustee or a fiduciary. They're acting under the, the role that they have as a power of appointment uh, person. How many people are on this committee? Generally speaking, we like to see the grantor, the grantor spouse, and at least two other individuals on that committee. And the selection process usually runs down to where the Power Appointment Committee can, by unanimous unanimous consent, uh, decide on the distribution when that occurs and to whom, or if they simply have come up with a majority position, then they do need to have the grantor consent to that. So the grantor sort of has veto control over over that role. I, I, I could probably also mention that the grantor does lose some control by having these other folks being involved, it's possible for the grantor to hire and fire all these people as long as the independent people not related to him or subordinate to him are appointed to take their role. So while there is a disbursement of control, there are some other checks and balances, if you will, in the proper ing structure. Gives me some confidence considering the amount of control I just gave up. So the question is, you put Sell a business for $20 million. State of California, you're looking at $2.6 million in tax. I've got it in this ING trust. How do I get the money back? So access to the money is really important. That's kind of where the power of appointment committee comes in. So I had mentioned sourcing. I had mentioned the fiduciary uh, aspects, the cast of characters again. So there's a second uh, wave of, of apportionment that California can tax a non-grantor trust income. And that's when a beneficiary actually receives a distribution from the trust. But So that's one way to get access is to receive a distribution. But but that might cause some tax implications. And so what some people are want to do is they set up the trust, they have their liquidity advantage, as just mentioned, the funds come into the trust, and then when they want to have access to it, sometimes the individual or their family members that want to receive a distribution will move outside the state of California for sufficient cooling off period, then receive their distribution, 
and then California wouldn't be able to tax it based upon where the beneficiary is located. Mark, you, you were talking about getting distributions in different states. Has there been any recent court cases or anything regarding that? Well, the middle of last year, the Supreme Court of the United States, in a unanimous decision, is the so-called Kaysner case, decided that it was unconstitutional for the state of North Carolina to tax a non-grantor trust there on income that might never be received by the beneficiary. In that particular case, the beneficiary had never received distributions in the past and uh, had not for the particular tax year that North Carolina was taxing them. So that type of a beneficiary is sometimes known as a contingent beneficiary. They, they may receive a distribution in the future. That is insufficient grounds to allow a state to tax the income of the trust. And that, again, that was a unanimous decision by the Kaysner case. So a lot of folks over here in California, the third prong for taxation, as I mentioned, was beneficiary. But not all beneficiaries are created equal. What I mean by that is that some beneficiaries are contingent beneficiaries, like the one in North Carolina, and others are non-contingent. They've either all already received a distribution or it's, it's locked in or, or pretty clear in the trust instrument that they will absolutely receive a distribution. Those are non-contingent beneficiaries, and, that's the, and that is the mechanism by which California. So if you have a non-contingent beneficiary located in the estate and one lo located outside of California, then, for example, California would be able to tax 50% of the non-grantor trust income back to California. So it's this idea of having non-contingent, in other words, discretionary. Um, and so that is the way that uh, most ings work is, is uh, you move out of the state, then you receive a distribution. But there may be other mechanisms, and I, I, I won't go into all, any detail about uh, other types of approaches uh, to get well, around, so, around that beneficiary hurdle. But So it doesn't sound like you would name a direct beneficiary in the state of California? No, unless you, they, again, if they are just on the power appointment and they have a discretionary ability, they're of the class that could receive a distribution, then they won't count for California purposes. Yeah, that'd be bad. That would, that would cause taxation. That would, that would cause taxation in the state of California. Not only would it cause taxation in the state of California for the, the current year's taxable income earned by the trust, but there is an, another set of rules if there were accumulated income from past years could also be taxed when a distribution actually occurs. Those are called so-called throwback rules, and, and we really don't like those. But they do; they are on the books here in California. So you have to be very careful about um, when you're dealing with beneficiary distributions. Is there a particular jurisdiction you like one over the other? Well, our most experience has been in in uh, Nevada or South Dakota, um, and those are top tier jurisdictions because of their favorable trust laws. Uh, there are other considerations, like when we mentioned. Wyoming wings or Delaware dings, even New Hampshire and Alaska are sometimes considerations. But the most experience has, and the mo most of the work really does reside within creating nings and South Dakota ings. 
There you go. What is the chance that the Franchise Tax Board doesn't like this transaction? Well, it's definitely on their radar screen. There have been some recent cases to do that, but they, they pretty much acknowledge through that case law and existing authority that if properly structured, you can avoid these hurdles. And as long as you uh, don't have the fiduciary apportionment, and as long as you have contingent beneficiaries uh, that don't count for California purposes, you can navigate through all these rules and uh, successfully. Okay, so there's a case right now that's, I believe, pending we were chatting about. Yes, um, a very a, a case that was surprising in one way and not surprising in another way. Um, yesterday, in fact, the pol- under yesterday, in fact, there was oral arguments were heard on the appeal of some of a case called the Paula Trust case. That case involved a sale of Century Theaters uh, that were 100% sourced to California, but yet the trustee, one trustee was located in California, one trustee was located out out of California. They, the Ing Trust in that particular case had only contingent beneficiaries, so beneficiaries were not important in that particular case. But California was taxed 50% of the income. The Fran- Franchise Tax Board really wanted to tax 100% of the income because it was originally 100% sourced to California. They were only able to tax based upon the, the fiduciary apportionment in that particular case. And many people think that that decision, which came out of a San Francisco Superior Court, was probably incorrectly decided. If it is true that all one has to do is take what income from whatever source they have and put those assets in a foreign trust, foreign to California, and avoid the taxation, then that is a loophole that is almost unfathomable to, to uh, consider. But yet, that's the rationale of that particular case that's up on appeal. So uh, if that case holds on appeal, then I'm sure the legislature will fix that giant loophole quickly and amend the statute. Well, that'd be nice if they gave us that for a little while. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I can see how it's very, very important to dot the I's and cross the T's and make sure you have all of the details of these trusts totally dialed in. I mean, what's the ramification of not having it perfect and, and how does the franchise tax order go about getting to you? Well, the franchise tax board in in almost all of these cases that I the two that I mentioned and a few others, they seem to come by it where the taxpayer originally had filed a return and and then did change their mind and thought, well, maybe not everything is apportioned to California, and then they filed for a refund. So they put themselves on the radar screen right away uh, for FTB attack. And the FTB will get their teeth into a particular situation, such as the ones that I've, I've just mentioned. However, again, if one is able to navigate through these particular rules, then they are on solid ground and, and will be able to be successful in, in uh, avoiding the, the California tax. That's good to hear. Yes. We just need someone like you on the team to make it happen. Well, it, it, it's, it's important to have proper advice in, in the, both the structure and the implementation. 
Absolutely. Hey, Mark, I really want to thank you for joining us today. You are a wealth of knowledge and a gentleman, and I always love having conversations with you about this stuff. So I appreciate you joining us today and sharing all these details with our clients. If people want to get in touch with you, how can they get in touch with you? Absolutely. My pleasure to to be on this podcast with you. Our firm website is LZ, standing for Levitzax-CPA.com, located here in San Diego, California. We'd be happy to uh, get in touch. Um, and our phone number is 619-238-1077. We're still taking phone calls during this unique period of time in the quarantine. Guys, this was a fantastic podcast. Kyle, thank you so much for bringing Mark on the show. Mark, I've got one question real quick. You spoke about maybe the legislature will change that decision. Right now it's it's holding, but uh, for anybody that maybe gets in and gets that work done before the legislature changed it, are they grandfathered into that? If the transaction and the income's already been reported, then yes, they would be grandfathered most likely by the legislation and probably it would not be retroactively instituted, most likely. Well, there you go. There's a clock on that one that it sounds like. Maybe, maybe. So be in people's best interest to reach out to you or the team at Centura, um, I'm assuming, and uh, to, to get any work done that they want to get done in a, a quick amount of time. Is that right? Eric, that's right. Eric, I should mention that if, however, the Politrust case is not upheld on appeal, then all bets are off and True. and the, the FTB will will go ahead and assert its position as if it was the law. All right. <laughs> Boy. Well, it's good to know that. And it's, I guess that's the exact reason that somebody needs to be talking to a professional so they know all the ins and outs and the possibilities. So again, guys, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Eric. Thank you much. You bet. And the last thank you always goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you for listening and tuning in to the Live Life Liberated podcast with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when they come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results.